0: Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the word of God preached today. So I've heard the slogan family first quite a bit, especially within Christian circles. You got to put the family first. There's nothing more important than family. In fact, if you talk to sociologists Or anthropologists over the years, I've heard them say the same thing over and over that the family is actually a mini civilization. That's interesting. Chew on that for a bit. The family is a mini civilization. That makes sense, right? If you have one person, is that a civilization? No, that's a person with preferences. If you have two people, nah, you just have friends. But if you have a family that has the potential of growing, you know, so you have kids, and then you have grandkids. All of a sudden, you do have a culture, likes and dislikes, forms of communication. And, uh, and they can grow and grow and grow and change and transform the world uh, around them. A family is a mini-civilization. So it makes sense to me that the family has such a high place within the church because they say, oh, there's no, nothing more important than family. Family first. Well, as we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 2 here, we're going to see the theme that we're looking at is what is God's requirement for his leaders? What is one of the most important requirements for his leaders? And you'd imagine with all this swirling around in my mind right now that I would say, well, it's got to be, you got to put the family first. It's got to be the most important thing, right? If you Your family, if you can't manage your family, how can you possibly work in the the kingdom of God and the church of God and in the world out there? What is God's one of God's primary requirements for leaders? And now I say leaders, and some of you are like, Whew, I can just tune out, this isn't me. But the reality is, is I think that all Christians are leaders because Because, if you think about it, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he changes you, he transforms you, and he now charges you to share the good news of the gospel with everyone around you in whatever context you find yourself in. Well, that's leadership. Uh, Furthermore, we're Baptists. It's in our name. One of the distinctives of Baptists is the universal priesthood of all believers. We believe that. It says it in Hebrews. We believe it's true. The universal priesthood of all believers, meaning we believe that every believer, man, woman, and child, is called by God to bring people towards God. That's what priests did in the Old Testament. They would bring the people into a place of deeper understanding and knowledge and worship of God. And we believe, as Baptists, as Christians, that every one of us is called to that. So we're all leaders. What's one of God's primary requirements for leadership? The people that he really works through. The people that he empowers to transform the world around them. That is a very inconsistent bell. You know that? <laughs> sometimes it rings, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> uh, it was perfect, though. It started right when I asked the question from the introduction right into the text. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Read along with me. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. And when the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat for from you but only raw. And if the man said to him, "Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish." He would say, "No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of Yahweh with contempt. So once again, anytime you see Lord all in capital letters in the Old Testament, that is a stand-in for Yahweh, and sometimes I will will uh substitute Yahweh for that. Okay, so you're looking at this. It starts off, it says they're worthless men. Some translations, which are equally good, say Eli's sons are wicked men. We find out later their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas, it says they're worthless men. They're wicked men. They're evil men. They don't know Yahweh, their the God, God. And yet they are serving as some of the top priests in the tabernacle where people would come and worship the one true God. Now, if you're reading this, you're like, okay, I, I don't really see what the big deal is, but let's, let's talk about what's happening here. And by the way, we are going to spend a little bit more time in this section, so don't fear when we spend a long time in this and say we got a long way to go. We'll go faster through the other sections, but we can't miss what's happening here. So how are the priests supposed to sacrifice? Um, his own hand will bring the food offering to the Lord in Leviticus 7. He will bring the fat together with the breast. The breast is to be presented as a presentation offering before the Lord. The priest is to burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from your fellowship sacrifices. The son of Aaron, who presents the blood of the fellowship offering and the fat, will have the right thigh as a portion. I have taken from the Israelites the breast of the presentation offering and the thigh of the contribution from their fellowship sacrifices and have assigned to the priest Aaron and to his sons is a permanent portion from the Israelites. Okay, you're like, wow, that was that's that's enough. I don't need any more. I can go and feel, for, feel fulfilled by this sermon. No, there was a prescription for how the sacrifices were supposed to be done. In the sacrifices, God said that the blood and the fat belong to God. And so it needed to be boiled so that there is no more fat and there is no more blood. But here... Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they say, you know what, we don't want boiled meat. Anyone ever you know, put like boiled meat? How wonderful is that? No, they wanted barbecue, right? They wanted barbecue because obviously this, they were proto-Baptists. They're like, we, we want barbecued meat. It's great. Uh, they wanted barbecue. Well, what happens when you barbecue meat? Do you get rid of the fat and you get rid of the blood? Not if you cook it right. <laughs> no, you don't. They said, no, we don't want to do this. And furthermore, they were supposed to have particular cuts of the meat that were supposed they'd offer them to God, they'd wave them in front of God. Then once the blood and the fat was boiled out or cooked out, they would take it, and then that would be their portion, that, that would be their pay that God would use. But it was only certain cuts. What are these guys doing? It would say they would take a three-pronged fork in his hand while, <laughs> while they're throwing it in, And they would grab whatever they wanted. Why a three-prong fork? Well, if you just stuck a knife in there, if you've ever boiled meat before, it just slides off, right? Two-prong, a little bit better. Three-prong, you definitely have what it's supposed to be. So they're looking for what they want, they're grabbing it out. But it gets worse. They would thrust it in the pan or kettle and they take what they wanted. But then it got worse because verse 15, moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So these guys are shaking down the, the people who are coming to make sacrifices. They're saying, no, no, give us raw meat before we even present it before Yahweh, the one true God. And the man said, well, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be done. We've all heard the Torah. We know what it says in Leviticus. This isn't how we're supposed to sacrifice. Then the priests, Hophni and Phineas, will say, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So you might say, well, wait a minute. You know, Why are they worthless, absolutely wicked? I mean, out of the, the grand scheme of sins, you'd be like, eh. You know, the text says, They're wicked, worthless men. They didn't know God. You're expecting that the next thing that you see is that they're murdering people or eating puppies or something horrible, right? And you're like, well, they're not doing the sacrifice right. All right, let's back up and let's talk about this. So when someone had to bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle, later the temple in the Old Testament, what kind of animal did they have to bring? Was it the best or was it the worst? Was it just like, hey, here's old Gomer. He's almost ready for the glue factory. I know they didn't have glue factories back then, and that's a horrible joke. And my wife's not sitting here right now, so I can make it. <laughs> He's about ready for the glue factory. I will sacrifice old Gomer over to, over, to, uh, over to God. Is that the kind of animal that God wanted? What kind of animal? Without blemish. Perfect. The best of the best. How expensive was that animal? It was a lot. It was a lot. And not just very expensive for the one animal, but for all the progeny. Because if you have a good animal, what do you do? You you, you stud the animal out so that it can make more and pass on its genes. And if you take this animal, the best of the best, and you sacrifice it, the bloodline ends there. We don't really have a context for that, but actually we do. We do. Anyone have a purebred animal at home? Anybody? I <laughs> know, you're like, are you going to call me? No, I'm not going to. Well, maybe. Um, okay, so let's talk about purebred animals. Are purebred animals inexpensive? Are they cheap? No. Anyone want to guess how much does an English Mastiff purebred cost? What's the rough estimate? $8,000? 1500 yeah, to 3000 right? This is according to the internet, so take it with a grain of salt, right? Don't. Oh, an English bulldog! How cute! Oh, it's so cute! How much? How much is that going for? <laughs> well, three thousand. Yeah, two to three thousand dollars. Horses. Any horse people here? Any horse people here? Yeah, I have one. All right. Horses. How much do horses go? Purebred horses. I'm not talking about what? Sixty thousand. They can go for a lot. Look at this, $2,500 to $150,000. $150,000. So imagine, this is why it was so evil. So imagine you are a farmer in Israel and you have sinned and you are so convicted by your sin, you know that you need forgiveness from God. And so you take the best of the best of your animals and you say, I need to be right with God. I will spend $2,500. I will spend $75,000. And I will go and I will bring this to God so that my sins might be forgiven. And it's not just a financial cost either. Because now, if someone sees you, let's say it's a man, sees you with the best animal you have, and you are walking through Israel. Your neighbors see you with a single animal walking towards Shiloh with a single animal. Do they know what's happening? Yeah, they know what's happening. They're like, hey, Bob has sinned. Seriously, yes, Bob is an ancient Israel name. Um, (laughs) Bob has sinned. He has sinned. And now what are the neighbors thinking? What a righteous man Bob is. No, they're like, man, I wonder what Bob did. (laughs) And all the rumors start, and Bob knows this, but he is so convicted with his sin and he so understands he needs to have a right relationship with God that he is willing to deal with the public scrutiny and lose out on his financial situation so that he can have a right relationship with God. That's the level of conviction he feels. And as he is carrying this animal and the conviction, and he goes and he brings it before the priests, the priests who are supposed to represent God, the priests who are supposed to bring God before the people. When he goes, he finds out these are not holy men. These are not men who care about God. These are a bunch of charlatans. These are scam artists. These are spiritual frauds trying to shake me down and all they want is to have a barbecue and then you come back and your neighbors say hey how'd it go right because they want to find out you know (laughs) you're going to tell me what happened your spouse says hey how did it go and bob says you know what it's all a scam it's all a ripoff it is all a fraud This isn't about getting right with God. This is about making those priests fatter on our hard work. Maybe there isn't even a God, and if there is a God, He doesn't care. That is what God is talking about in the commandment. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You will not speak for God when He has not spoken. You will not do evil in the name of God. This is so terrible. Because there there are people who will never, ever seek out a right relationship with God again because they think it's all a fraud. This is why in the church, in 21st century America, when you have pastors participating in things that they ought not to participate in, it is horrendously evil because there will be people that will say, this is all a scam, I am never going to church again. You think about the people who will say, the pastors, the spiritual authorities who will say, hey, if you give me this money, then God will heal you of your cancer or your loved one of your cancer. Or if you give me this money, then God will give you seven times what you sowed in here. And the person still has their the cancer, their loved one still dies, and they are now financially destitute. And seven times what they sowed doesn't come back. And what do those people say? They say it's all a sham, it's all a fraud, there is no God in heaven, it doesn't matter, and there are people who die in their sins apart from Christ because people who claim to represent God have contempt for who God is. That's why this is so evil. Because in ancient Israel and in today. When people in spiritual authority do evil, selfish, self serving things in the name of God, there are people who will go to hell because they have misrepresented God. What is one of God's primary requirements for leaders? Verse 18, the text shifts a little bit, a little happier, a little brighter. Samuel was ministering before Yahweh, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked for the Lord, so that they... So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So this is kind of a sweet, tender moment. Eli has uh, adopted Samuel, essentially. But every once a year, Samuel gets to see his biological mom and dad. And, and his mom, Hannah, brings him a little priest garment. I mean, it's adorable, right? You see little kids running around, right? And they, you know... Little kids, and they've got like a little suit on. Like, that's the cutest thing in the world. There are little girls, and they got big princess dresses on, and you're like, oh, it's so adorable. I mean, he, he's not actually a priest yet, but he's got the little priest robe, and he's running around, and it's great. But he sees his mom and dad once a year. Eli, meanwhile, is raising him. How did Eli do with his two sons as a parent? Apparently, pretty bad. Now, I don't know how old Samuel is here. My guess is he's somewhere, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, somewhere between 7 and 12. How good do young boys do when they have negative influences around them? Not good at all. So his dad and his, his adopted brothers are morally bankrupt. How is Samuel going to turn out? Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. So it says Eli was very old, and almost as an aside, it says he was. Hophni and Phinehas were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he doesn't put this. This isn't put as an aside because it's saying that this isn't serious. It's putting it as an aside to say, yes, this was horrible. We needed to make the point about how horrible it was to misrepresent, to do evil in the name of God. And they were also, it's saying, sexually abusing the women who were trying to serve God at the tabernacle. We see that today. I mean, there's a crisis in the Western church of pastors, spiritual authority, Sexually abusing their congregation. And by the way, yes, if a pastor is sleeping with any member of his congregation, that is always sexual abuse. And as an aside, which the text isn't in here, but I will say say this as a pastor, if you have suffered sexual abuse and you need to talk about it at any time now, 20 years from now, I will sit down, I will listen, I will believe you, we will walk alongside this together. It is... Atrocious, what they did. They laid with the women who are serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That is sexual abuse. And so, Eli, what does he do? Well, what should he do? He's in charge. In Leviticus uh, 22 9, it says, The priests must keep my instruction, or they will be guilty and die because they profane it. I am the Lord who sets them apart. So, Eli knew what the law was. Eli knew what the law, law was, and yet he didn't act. I mean, first of all, he's the one in charge. He could have just said, you guys are done. At the least, he could have said, you're done. Take their power away, put someone else in that position. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Why? I don't know why. Let's, this is probably just conjecture, but from everything we understand, Eli's wife probably died. She probably died a long time ago. And these are his boys. He loves his boys. He cares for them. Maybe when he sees them, he sees his his wife's face in their, their faces. He doesn't want to do anything to hurt them. He doesn't want to do anything that causes them pain. And so instead of disciplining them, instead of holding them accountable for their decisions, instead of bringing them before a court, he just lets them continue on. He says, hey, you shouldn't do this. And they say, Whatever, dad. You're old and you're not going to be around for much longer anyway. So it doesn't go good for Eli. Verse 27, it says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fatting yourselves by the choice parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promised Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a shore house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. Wow. Wow. So we don't even know who this is. Some random prophet God raises up and brings to the house of God and he says, you're done. I've given you opportunity time and time again and you and your sons have hated me. Eli put his boys, put his family above God and ultimately it hurt his boys. It hurt himself. The, shift, the, uh, the text shifts. And what's interesting here is we see the same exact story again. Let's look at it. In verse, or chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So it starts it off, the, this new story, it's Samuel, and it's like, okay, He's probably going to become just like the people who've been raising him. You've seen that before. Where there's like a, you know, there's a never, never does good father, and then you meet a son 20 years later, and you're like, wow, you're the exact same person. Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not gone out yet, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. This is problematic for a few reasons. One, the, the, they're letting the, the lampstand go out. The lampstand is never supposed to go out. And then Samuel is sitting by the ark of God. Like, that doesn't make sense. Here, so let's, take a look at the ta- let's take a look at the tabernacle here real quick. Hey, Marley, I got it. You don't have to do it. I got it. Okay. So this is kind of how the tabernacle would look. People would come in and they'd worship in that large space. And then the inside the tabernacle, you had the holy place right in here. Oh. Ah. My, my direction is not working. Okay, you had the in the first place past the first curtain, you had that lamp stand in there, and that was supposed to be burning at all times. And then you had the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was in, and only the high priest was supposed to go in there once a year. And meanwhile, Samuel is sleeping next to it? That's weird. Not supposed to happen, but Eli, he's not the most competent of priests. So Samuel's laying there. Verse 4, And then the Lord called to Samuel. And Samuel said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And then Yahweh called again. Samuel, And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called to Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down and lay in his place. And the Lord came and stood and calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Man, what does God want with a little boy? Right, Like he can't be more than 12. What does God want? With, what's he going to do? I mean, God's going to bring a message, probably going to be positive, right? Or if he's going to ask him to do anything, it's probably not going to be that, that big. How, how much responsibility can you put on the shoulders of a child? How much responsibility should you put in the shoulders of a child? How much? But instead, what does God say? Verse 11. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever." Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. So he hears this message. I mean, can you imagine? Can you, like a ten, let's say 10 years old. Can you imagine a 10-year-old? And God appears to the 10-year-old and says, I want you to deliver the worst news to your father. What? What? And it says Samuel, he lays down, but he can't sleep. I don't know about you, but I I never have a hard time sleeping, ever. I'm like, I just lay my head down on the pillow, I'm out, and I don't have trouble sleeping. The only times I've ever, 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 ever had trouble sleeping is when a family member was in dire trouble. And here, little Samuel, little Sammy, he can't sleep. Because God told him, I want you to bring a message and it is going to hurt your father worse than he's ever been hurt before. I want you to put me above your family. That is a lot. And it says that Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Verse 16, But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. This is the moment. This is it. Family or God. Who is Samuel going to choose first? Family. Or God? Is he going to do what God told him to do? Or is he going to protect his father's feelings? Family or God? Verse 18. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I mean, that response from Eli. What's the proper response when you're confronted with your sin? Repent. Someone confronts you, this, and you legitimately have done something wrong. The proper response as Christians is repent. I am sorry I did wrong. What does Eli do? The priest, the high priest. I mean, you know, they didn't exactly have that title, but he's functioning as that, the highest of priests. What should, he have, what should he have done? He knows this. He should have repented. What does he do? He gives this passive-aggressive, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah, will be, will be. It's this really passive-aggressive, sarcastic thing. Well, God's going to do what he thinks is good, I guess. If that's what God wants, who am I to stop it? I guess I can't do anything. No, repent! Realize what you did was wrong. He doesn't even do that. Doesn't even do that. But Samuel, told him everything and hid nothing from him. Samuel chose God over his family. Didn't mean he didn't think his family wasn't important. Didn't mean he didn't care for his family. Didn't mean he didn't love his family. But he understood that God is more important than anything else else in his life. And when God calls him to something, he will do it. And when God calls him to the hardest of things, he will follow through no matter what the consequences are. What is one of the primary requirements God has for leaders. One of the primary requirements that God has for leaders is that they will put God above anything else. They will put God above whatever comes their way, whether it is their personal relationships, whether it is their job, whether it is their income, whether it's their finances, it's their hobby, their free time, even the family to say, God, you and you alone are more than anything else in my life. Where you go, I will go. Where you lead, lead me. I will follow you no matter what. And what was the result? Eli and his family are cut off forever. They got it totally reversed. But what happens with Samuel? Verse 19, and Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground, meaning everything he said came true. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And Yahweh appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. One of God's primary purposes, one of his primary requirements for leaders is to put God above anything else, including the family, but also including our jobs, including our free time, including our energy, including everything, is to put him first. It's very countercultural for some of you, but, but the reality is, is that Eli ultimately hurt his family by reversing that, by saying his family was more important than anything else. He was going to protect his son's high and lofty position. He was not going to discipline them. He was not going to take them out. He wasn't even going to give them a time out. And he certainly wasn't going to bring them before a court. And in doing so, in being permissive, in putting their needs above God's rules, above God's morality, above God himself, What happened? It ultimately destroyed his sons. It ultimately destroyed himself. And that's where God is saying, look, I am the most important thing. He's not saying our families aren't important. He is not saying that, look, abandon your family. Look, neglect your children. Look, your aging parents, ah, who cares about that? That's not what he's saying. What the writer of 1 Samuel is saying, what God is saying through his word is that he is the most important. And if you want God to work through you, you have to make him supreme in your life. If you want God to work in and through you, you have to make him number one. If you don't, it reverses it and you hurt everyone. Teenagers, if you put your family above God, guess what? You hurt your parents. You do. Parents, if you put your kids above God, you will ultimately hurt your children. If you put your family's wants, needs, and desires above worshiping and following the one true God, you will hurt your family in the long run. That's what he's telling us here today. So if you love your family, follow God first. You think about, so we have a good negative example with Eli. Eli. He put his his kids before God and it destroyed his kids. But but you think about some positive examples of this. Uh, Think of the missionary Hudson Taylor. If you're familiar with Hudson Taylor, uh, he is the person who effectively brought the gospel to China. Now, it wasn't just that he was the first person. He was not the first person to bring the gospel to China. He was the first person to effectively bring the gospel to China because typically what would happen is Westerners would go over to China and they would set up a little area. And they would uh, try and teach everyone English or whatever language they spoke. And they would continue to wear all their Western clothes. And they would have special schools for their kids that would teach them Western values. And, and they would eat Western foods. They would import food from the West to go and eat so they didn't have to eat the food of the locals. And what Hudson Taylor did, he's like, this is insane. Paul said, I become all things to all people that I might win more for the gospel of Christ. And so Hudson Taylor, what he would, he did is he began a ministry and a missionary and all the missionaries that he would work with would go to China and they would live as Chinese people. They would wear Chinese clothes. They would, go to, they would send their children to Chinese schools. They would speak the language of the local people instead of insisting that they learn English or whatever language was so that they could speak and hear the gospel in this foreign language. No, they would learn the language and then go share the gospel. In fact, Hudson, I mean, in 21st century America, that makes sense. But, but back then, he was criticized. He was reviled. People hated him. And you know what? It was effective. And China is set to become the most populous Christian nation in the next 20 years because of the work that he started, because he was willing to say, no, no, I'm going to live with the people as the people that I am ministering to and sharing the gospel with. I'm going to live with them. But you know what? That was a hard life. Not only did his family get ridicule, he took his wife and children to another country, exposed them to diseases that they did not have natural immunity to, Gave them an education that he wasn't entirely sure about. Took opportunities that he would have had if he had stayed in his home country. But he chose to put God first. And the result, as hard as it was, was the transformation of many lives and more sons and daughters brought into the kingdom of God. Tomorrow we are observing Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., did he put God or did he put family first? If he put his family first, he certainly would not have sought out the justice of God to show people that God has made all people equal and everyone is made in the image of God. He certainly wouldn't have done that because he put himself in danger. He put his family in danger by proclaiming God's justice to this country but he chose to put God first. One of his contemporaries, John Perkins, who's still with us, praise be to God, he understood that it's only through the love of Jesus, it's only through the love of gospel, the gospel that people's hatred in their heart can actually be transformed. And uh, the young adults and I were watching a, um, a documentary on, a short documentary a couple months ago, a couple months ago, right? Um, up upstairs, and it, it just amazed me. He was talking about at the point where they made the decision to send their black kids into a white school, and his words were, we knew that we were sending our children into hell, but so that change could happen, we had to do this over and over again. Can you imagine that? Hey, I I want to protect my kids. And him and his wife made a conscious decision to say, for the love of the gospel in the name of Jesus and that Jesus might protect them, we are going to send them into a place where they will be ridiculed and reviled. Who did John Perkins put first, his family or God? But the result in putting God first was not just to transform community, but it's transformed children. It's children when they interview them. I mean, they have nothing but respect and love for their parents and for God. We are all called to be leaders where God has placed us. Whatever your job is, whatever community, whatever lifestyle you are living in, God has called you to be a leader there, to bring the hope and the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ where you are at. We are in a world that needs hope. That needs to know there's a God in heaven who loves us, who sent his son Jesus to die for us, and who rose again, and that all of our sins can be forgiven if we place our trust in him. By, by the blood of Jesus, we are forgiven, we are transformed, we are welcomed by God and called his sons and daughters. This world needs that message, and God is looking for people who will place him above anything else. God's primary calling in requirement for your leadership in the situation you're at is to put him above anything else what you do with god determines what he does with you let's pray father Thank you for the example of Samuel. Thank you for the example of Hudson Taylor. Thank you for the example of Dr. Martin Luther King. Thank you for the example of John Perkins. And thank you that, Father, these imperfect people just like us have been transformed through your grace, through your mercy. And by choosing to put you first, you have worked mightily through them to transform the worlds around them. Father, I pray that we will follow in their footsteps, that, Father, you will help us Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who have been raised with him in his resurrection power, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, help us to lead likewise, to put you first, Father God, to put Christ first, Father God. And as we do so, we understand that that is a blessing and a benefit, even though there might be short-term difficulties, it is a blessing and a benefit to our parents, to our children, to our families, to our work, to our homes, to our communities. We can't do this on our own. So God the Father, I would ask you to send the Spirit to fill with us, a desire to follow Jesus in all and everything. Change us and transform us. Help us to follow King Jesus no matter what. Give us the strength to do so. And help us to see the world change as we bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus, by the power of his blood, that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbcterrytown.org.